So we're going to take our time this morning in the little letter of Philemon, the, the sister letter of the book, New Testament book of Colossians. It was read for you. Uh, if you know much about me, if you get to know me, I love history. Uh, I love historical movies. I love biographies. I love historical books. And I did not get to Washington, D.C. until a couple of years ago. And when I finally got to Washington, D.C., one of the places that I really wanted to go to was the National Archives Museum. The history that it holds is incredible. In one building, you have the Declaration of Independence, an edition of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. I mean, incredibly important documents from a historical standpoint. I mean, think about it. In one building, we have the original Declaration of Independence written in 1776. The document then, in a very real way, birthed a nation. And it's amazing to think that that document has been preserved for us for centuries. But on one hand, it's really, te- it's really easy to understand explain and understand why the Declaration of Independence has been preserved. It was written by some of the brightest minds in the world. Again, historically, it's significant. It is significant. The the writing of it gave birth to a, a nation. We understand, again, from a very human standpoint, why the Declaration of Independence has been preserved for centuries. And I find it incredibly fascinating that all of the things you can say about the Declaration of Independence, its significance, you cannot say any of those things about the little letter of Philemon. Think about it. From an earthly standpoint, it is not written from anyone who's particularly notable. Yes, you and I have heard about the Apostle Paul, but in his day, he was an imprisoned Jewish missionary. No one had heard of him outside of Christianity. Think about the letter itself, its contents. From a theological standpoint, you you can't even find any notable doctrines in the New Testament preached. Paul doesn't even mention in it the death or the resurrection of Christ. From a theological standpoint, it it, it doesn't stand out all that much. And, And think about its contents. It is a letter written by an imprisoned Jewish missionary to a master who owns slaves about his slave Onesimus. Its people are relatively insignificant. And yet, though we can say all those things about the little letter of Philemon, it may be one of the most explosive things that Paul wrote. It may be one of the most powerful letters in the New Testament. Now, we heard it read... Uh, before we think about it and talk about it together, let me just put it together, the, the backstory of the letter for you. Let's reconstruct it historically. Philemon, uh, the title of the letter, Philemon was most likely a wealthy man. We can tell that he was wealthy by the fact that he owned bondservants and that most likely, as Paul greets the church in Colossae, Paul, this man Philemon was wealthy enough to host a church in his home. We don't know how Philemon became a Christian, but most seems likely that he became a Christian through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Perhaps he traveled from his city of Colossae to Ephesus and heard Paul preach there, became a believer, and then went back to Colossae and started a church in his home. 
But either way, even though we don't know exactly how it happened, Paul identifies him in verse 2 as a partner in the gospel. Scholars, some guess that Philemon was one of the elders at the church in Colossae. A number of scholars also guess that Aphia, the woman mentioned in verse 2, is his wife, the leading couple at the church of Colossae. Now the book, the letter of Philemon, is about a man named Onesimus. Onesimus had been one of Philemon's slaves. And verse 11 seems to indicate that he was not a helpful servant to him. Many guess because of verse 18 that not only was Onesimus a bad servant, but that upon running away from Philemon, he stole from him. Now, if you were a runaway slave like Onesimus, you would have been constantly living as a fugitive, looking over your shoulder all the time for people who may catch you and bring you back to your master. You would have been subject to the death penalty. So think about the life of Onesimus, a runaway slave. And maybe it's all of this desperation in his life that led him to the Apostle Paul. Now, we don't know how he met Paul. Maybe he met him in prison on purpose. Maybe it was a a happenstance meeting. But upon meeting Paul, Onesimus himself becomes a Christian. And as Paul talks about Onesimus to Philemon, he says that Onesimus is a dear brother, a helpful partner in the Lord. Paul knows that he cannot keep Onesimus even though he was dear to him, that Paul knows that he needs to send him back to Philemon. And Onesimus carries the letter of Colossians and this letter to Philemon with him. And in the letter that you read, you have the Apostle Paul's personal appeal to Philemon on behalf of Onesimus. It's beautiful. Look at verses 15 through 17. In these verses, you have the main appeal. Everything that's leading up to it is setting the stage for Paul to make this request. Verse 15, for this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you may have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you both in the flesh and in the Lord. So verse 17, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Paul pleads with Philemon on behalf of Onesimus that these two brothers in the Lord would be reconciled together in the gospel. Receive him as you would receive me. That's the central theme of the book of Philemon, that the gospel brings real relief, real reconciliation to real sinners. You have to to be amazed at the Apostle Paul, finding himself in the middle, middle of a very delicate situation as he writes this letter, because he wants Philemon not simply to forgive Onesimus, but to receive him. And and embrace him as a brother in Christ. So as you think about that appeal, as you think about Paul's radical request, what fuels it? What is underneath it? What is the foundation for Paul to think that a slave and a master who have sinned against each other could be reconciled together? What is the foundation 
for this kind of reconciliation? If you take notes, I'm going to answer that question in three ways. First, reconciliation is produced by fellowship. Reconciliation is produced by fellowship. Look at verses 4 through 7. After giving a greeting where Paul makes it clear that this letter is addressed to Philemon, but it's also intended to be a public letter read to the church as a whole as Paul addresses the whole church. Paul turns personally to Philemon and says in verse 4, I thank my God when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love. I hear of the love that you have for all the saints. I hear of the love you have for Christ and for the faith that you have in Him. And then Paul in verse 6 tells us what he's praying for, for Philemon. And it's his prayer for him is birthed out of the fact that he knows of his love. Verse 5, I hear of your love. I know that you love the saints. And verse 6, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us. For the sake of Christ. As Paul begins his letter, again in verse 5, he is thankful because of the love and faith that Philemon has towards the saints and towards Christ. Paul prays for him. And this prayer in verse 6 paves the way for his bold request to Philemon. He says in verse 6, let me read it again. It's actually a really hard verse To translate, it's a really hard verse to understand. I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Now, let's pick this verse apart for a second. In verse 6, when he says, I pray that the sharing of your faith, that word sharing, it's easy to read it and think, well, Paul is talking about Philemon's ability or desire to preach the gospel, to evangelize. I I pray that the sharing of your faith becomes effective. In fact, I I listened to a sermon from a well-known preacher, and he confessed that at first, when he read this verse, he thought Paul was talking about Philemon's ability to evangelize, right? The sharing of your faith. I pray that that would become effective. But that's not what he's referring to. The sharing of your faith is not talking about evangelism. The word sharing is the word koinonia. Now, it's, if you don't know Greek, if, if you've ever been to a Christian coffee shop, most likely it was named koinonia cafe. I don't know why. That's just what all of them are named. But that word koinonia is translated fellowship or partnership in a number of places. The idea of fellowship or koinonia or partnership is when two or more people receive something together and share in it. The koinonia is we become partners together. And in Paul's prayer for Philemon, he's praying that the reality of their partnership in the faith, the fellowship that they have together in the faith, would become effective in their lives. Paul says that our faithfulness to Jesus and to each other means recognizing That as followers of Christ together, we are united in the gospel. We share together in God's gift of love and grace. And Paul wants this reality to transform them. 
I want this reality, the partnership of your faith, to become effective in your life. I want it to become real. I want it to unlock all of the treasures that you have in Christ for the sake of Christ. Paul wants them to understand that their unity in the gospel, their fellowship in the faith is meant to fundamentally change them. Now, I enjoy movies as well as history, and one of the movies my wife and I walked together was the, watched together a couple years ago was the movie Shazam. It's fun to say, I guess. It's about a little, a teenage boy named Billy Batson. And Billy Batson uh, is endowed by a wizard with supernatural powers. He's just a normal teenage boy, and he becomes a superhero. But the wizard doesn't tell Billy what he can do. So at the beginning of the movie, after he becomes a superhero, it's really quite comical as Billy discovers all of his superpowers. And in one scene, this is, this, you know, this always happens in movies, he goes into a convenience store as a superhero, and it, the store is, gets robbed. A man comes in with a gun, and he holds up the store owner, and Billy looks at his friend, and they try to figure out what are we going to do, and he confronts the man with the gun, and the man pulls the trigger, the bullet hits Billy in the chest, and bounces off, and he looks at his friend and says, I'm bulletproof! I figured out all, and that just began a journey of figuring out together all of their newfound superpowers. I think, I think Paul is doing something similar to Philemon. He, he's saying to him now, you have partnership in Christ with everyone who trusts in Jesus, and you are now just beginning to understand all of the new realities that the gospel has brought you into. And what I want you to discover in this situation, that your partnership in Christ opens up a treasure trove of goodness for you in Jesus. You've only scratched the surface of the new realities that the gospel has brought you into. That's his prayer. And that concept of fellowship, of partnership, is central to Paul's appeal. In fact, that theme brackets the entire letter. If you go down to verse 17, as Paul makes his appeal to Philemon, he says, if you consider me your partner, if we have fellowship with one another, that's the same word, koinonia. If we have koinonia with one another, receive him as you would receive me. Paul can expect. I mean, think about this request Paul is making to Philemon. This is your runaway slave who was a bad servant and stole from you. Now I'm writing and asking you not only to forgive him, but to receive him back as a brother, perhaps to send him out back with me as a pastor and missionary. Paul can make this request. Because he understands the transforming effect the gospel has on our relationships. That in Christ, as, as we are partners together in the gospel, we are all barely scratching the surface of the good things that God has for us in Jesus. Our reconciliation in, together is an undeniable and unstoppable fruit of the fellowship we have in the gospel. Paul can make this request because of that partnership. Now, uh, just a quick question of application for you. Paul places an immense amount of freight in the concept of unity in the gospel. 
He expects it to do a great work in these two men's lives. He sees the fellowship that they have in the church as incredibly significant, transforming relationships. Do you think about your relationships to other believers that way? Do you think about your partnership in the gospel with each other with that level of significance? I don't think, I think I overlook it in my life regularly. But Paul prays that their fellowship in Christ would open up to them all the treasures of good that they have in Jesus. Their reconciliation is produced by fellowship. Second, their reconciliation is fueled by love. As you continue moving through this little letter, look at verse 8. Paul, after telling Philemon that he prays for him and is thankful for him and shares his request, he he begins to move into his appeal. In verse 8, Accordingly, though I am bold in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonments. And in verse, jump down to verse 14. Paul says, I, I could command you to do this, verse 14, but I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion but of your own accord. Paul rightly understood that he had the right, as an apostle, to command Philemon to welcome and forgive Onesimus. Paul could have simply said in his letter, Philemon, Onesimus is now a brother in the Lord. You receive him back. Take him in as a brother. Release him from his servitude to you. Restore him as a brother in your household. Paul could have just commanded him to do that. Why doesn't he? On top of that, in Ephesians 4, Paul writes that Christians are required to forgive one another. Ephesians 4.32, forgive one another, Christ has forgiven you. Paul doesn't even appeal to that command. Why doesn't he? Instead of focusing on his apostolic authority to make the command or the Christian duty of forgiveness, Paul appeals to love. And he does it in a number of ways. In his appeal to love, Paul mentions his own station. He says to Philemon, I have been, you know who I am. I'm Paul, verse 9, a prisoner for Christ. Philemon, you know that for the sake of Jesus, I have given up my freedom. I'm imprisoned because I'm a minister of the gospel. Philemon, if I'm willing to give up my freedom and place myself under bondage for Jesus, are you willing to do the same? To give up your rights, to give up your freedom, to forgive this man. In his appeal to love, Paul also highlights his love for Onesimus. He makes it very clear to Philemon that Onesimus is a dear child to him. He's appealing to Philemon, saying, not only do this for love for Onesimus, but because you love me. Transfer the love you have for me to Onesimus, my son in the faith. In his appeal to love, the Apostle Paul appeals to Philemon himself. I want you to do this. 
I want this to come from your love so that your goodness might not be out of compulsion, but of your own accord. I want you to do this because of love in verse 14. And I think that's the question in this letter. Will Philemon's goodness, will the good that Paul wants Philemon to do flow out of a heart of love? Or or will his obedience be cold and calculated? But what what kind of deeds please the Lord? Is God pleased by cold, calculated obedience? Paul could have said, do this. I command you to do it. And Philemon could have begrudgingly given to that obligation. But would that have pleased the Lord? I mean, what does Paul say in 2 Corinthians? God loves a cheerful giver. As one scholar said, only freely offered sacrifices are pleasing to God. So Paul could have made the command, but instead he appeals. He appeals to love. He appeals to love because he knows that obedience born out of love is pleasing to God. But, but I think there's something else to this. Paul understands something very important. That in our lives as Christians, love will always motivate us to do more than law. Love will always take us further than law. Think about it. Think about Two soldiers who go into war together. One of them is wounded on the battlefield. Why does the soldier run back into harm's way to pick up his wounded friend and carry him to safety? Because he has a legal obligation to that man? Because he says, well, we, we signed up at the same time. and we're, I have to. No, that, the soldier is motivated, not by law, but by love. Why does the husband step between his wife and a would-be attacker? Someone who wants to harm her. Because he says, well, honey, oh boy, I got our marriage certificate in my pocket. And on there is just a little note that I have to protect you. So I'm legally obligated to help you in this situation. But I don't really want to. Why does he do it? Why does the husband step in front of harm's way for his wife? Because he has to? Because the law demands him to? No. Because of love. Why does a mother spend herself daily often neglecting her own needs for her newborn child because she signed a contract when she took her home from the hospital? No, because she's motivated by selfless love for her child. She will give up everything, even daily showers for her children. Why do dads get home from a grueling day of work and then get down on the floor and wrestle with their kids? Because they have to? No, because they love their children and they will sacrifice themselves for the people that they love. Paul understands this. Love often takes more from you than that the law could ever require. But you know what happens? You give it readily. Love love takes more, but you give it freely. You give it joyfully. You give it gratefully. Love is the fuel for reconciliation between Onesimus and Philemon. And Paul knows this. Paul knows that if this reconciliation is going to really happen, if these two brothers are really going to be united in the faith, then love is going to be the glue that binds them together. And why does Paul know this? Paul knows this because love is the fuel for the reconciliation between God and sinners. Think about it. What motivates 
Jesus to reconcile you to God. What motivates that? Did Jesus have a legal obligation to reconcile you to the Father? Did you fill a gap in the Godhead? God couldn't exist without you, so he had to save you? Was he morally obligated to reconcile you to God? No. What what motivated Jesus to give up himself for you, a sinner, so that you would be reconciled to God? It is love. Underneath all of God's plan of salvation, underneath the gospel, is a God who loves. So think about what Jesus does for us in his humanity. He gives and he gives and he gives and he gives and he gives himself to the point of death on the cross. Suffering cruel agony and shame on our behalf. And why does he give all of it? Because he loves you. Because he loves you. Friend, if you are not a Christian, and you're here, hearing this message, the only thing keeping you, the only thing keeping you from experiencing the greatest love you could ever imagine is your own refusal to embrace the love of Jesus. Because he has shown you in black and white, in the words of Scripture, that he loves you, that he died for you. God sent his son into the world. Jesus, the son, died on the cross for your sin so that if you believe in Jesus, if you trust in the power of his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins, you will experience the relentless, unstoppable love of God. And if you're not a believer, I invite you to that. I invite you right now to trust in Jesus. To be reconciled to God. The fuel for their reconciliation. The fuel for the reconciliation between Onesimus and Philemon is the love of God. Because love is the fuel for the reconciliation of the gospel. Third, this reconciliation is secured by grace. As I said in verses 15 and 17, as Paul says, I could command you in verse 14, but I wanted your goodness to flow from your all your own accord. Paul makes his request in verses 15 to 17, receive him back as a brother. And then maybe the most beautiful part of this letter is verses 18 through 20. As Paul makes his appeal, he says in verse 18, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, Anything, charge it to my account. I, Paul, I write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of you owing me even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. With this request, we can see the heart of Paul's gospel message is being acted out. As he told the Corinthians, at the heart of the gospel is God reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. In this situation, in the situation between Philemon and Onesimus, two estranged men, Paul is playing the role of Jesus, the reconciler. He is saying to Philemon, I will absorb the consequences of Onesimus' wrongdoing in my own body. I will pay the cost myself. All of the wrong that he owed you, give it to me so that you can have him back. 
Paul's letter to Philemon is powerful for many reasons. As I mentioned, it's the only letter in the New Testament written by Paul which doesn't explicitly mention the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is not an oversight. This is not accidental. Paul doesn't need to explain these things explicitly because the letter itself is a demonstration through the actions of the Apostle Paul. Paul is embodying the meaning of the cross, becoming the means by which Onesimus and Philemon are reconciled to God as well as each other. So if you're reading Philemon, think about this letter and this situation from the perspective of Onesimus. You become a Christian, and the Apostle Paul tells you, all right, you need to go back to Philemon. But don't worry, I got a letter. I've written on your behalf. What gave Onesimus the courage to go back? What gave Onesimus the confidence to move, to go, to, to, to seek out this reconciliation? Think about it from the perspective of Philemon for a moment. What would give Philemon the motivation to forgive? What gave Paul, the third person in this letter, the, the courage to write? I think one of the most powerful pictures in all of this is Onesimus standing in front of his old master Philemon. He says to him, I know I've wronged you. I know, I know I've stolen from you. I've run away from you. And I, I don't have the resources to pay you back. All of the justice that you would want to put on me, I deserve. But there's someone who said he would pay my debt. And he hands him the letter from the Apostle Paul who says, place everything that this man owes, owes you on me. And I think Onesimus had the confidence to do that. I think Paul had the courage to write and Philemon the motivation to forgive because all three of these men knew, knew that they were just like Onesimus. That, that if they stood before God the Father, they could say, God, I know I've sinned against you. I've wronged you. My whole life, I've tried to take your glory and claim it as my own. I've sinned against you every day. And God, I have nothing that I can give to pay my debt back to you. And then they point to Jesus, and we say, but this man can. And Jesus said, if I owe you anything to charge to his account, you see, Paul doesn't need to explicitly mention the gospel because it, this letter is a picture of it. It's the picture of the grace of God. Philemon would be motivated to forgive him. Paul can be confident that Philemon would receive him because Paul is confident that Philemon understands that he is a debtor to the grace of God, that it is the grace of Jesus that purchased not only Philemon's reconciliation to himself, 
but it's the grace of Jesus that purchased the reconciliation of Philemon and Onesimus. And Paul is confident that the gospel is going to do its work, that the gospel is going to reconcile these two sinners together. Now, what happens? What happens when you get a group of people together who know that they are accepted by God unconditionally, that nothing can separate them from the love of God? What, what do you get in a church of people who know that they are reconciled and received by grace alone? Paul understands that in the church, the fellowship we have in the gospel will produce unstoppable partnership in the gospel. That the gospel will not simply be truth that we believe, that the gospel will create a culture in our church where sins are readily forgiven. I can forgive you, you can forgive me, even though I don't deserve it. Why? Because Jesus forgave us. more than Jesus forgave me more than I will ever need to forgive you. So if the gospel is real in our hearts and our lives, it will create in our church a culture where sins are readily forgiven. Relationships are regularly restored. Sinners are received and welcomed by grace. That needy people will come into our churches and not feel judged or condemned because we see each other as sinners in desperate need of the gospel together. That we are united by the grace of Jesus. That we will have Philemon's men willing to forgive and Paul working for reconciliation and Onesimus knowing that we need forgiveness. We have people who come together in the gospel and the gospel culture will create this. The gospel will create this kind of culture. How? Well, the fellowship that we have with one another in the gospel will empower us. The love of Jesus will compel us and the grace of God will give us the resources that we need. So brothers and sisters, my, my, my hope for you is that the gospel is not simply a message that you give lip service to, but this church, Richfield Bible Church, displays the gospel in relationships beautifully constructed by the love of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we can say that because of your love for us, your love for us, which was first before our love for you. We thank you for the letter of Philemon and the picture of the gospel that it contains. And I pray that the gospel would be real to us. To everyone in this room, the gospel would be real. Jesus would be real to us. And that the evidence of the gospel in our lives would be obvious to everyone around us. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his death and resurrection for us. And we pray these things in his name and for his glory. Amen.